Well, again, our text is Luke 17 in verses 1 to 6. I encourage you to have that there open before you this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you a forgiving person? Do you have the faith to forgive? Or are you the kind of person who causes others to sin? Are you a stumbling block to others? Well, that's what Jesus deals with here. He's just finished telling the parable uh, with the Pharisees about the rich man and Lazarus, speaking about heaven and hell. He warned them about the reality and eternity of hell and that they would consider the value of their souls before it was too late. Now he tells his disciples of what he demands. In this passage, he tells them not to give offense in verses 1 and 2 or to take offense in verses 3 and 4, but to forgive by faith in verses 5 and 6. These are warnings, and they're serious. They also are impossible for any person to fulfill, which is why we need grace. So hear God's word this morning from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, under the theme, Forgiveness and Faith. And we'll look at this with two points. First of all, the difficult demands. And secondly, the essential request. The difficult demands and the essential request. Well, Jesus starts off with a warning And it's not to be a stumbling block to believers. That's what these verses say, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 say, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus was a a realist. He believed in the universality of sin. That's seen in other parts of the gospel. If you go, for example, and look at Luke chapter 13, uh, it speaks there of some people coming to Jesus with a concern that the Galilean worshipers were killed and some of their blood mixed in with the sacrifices. And Jesus replied to that by saying, Do you think that they were any worse sinners because they died this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. When it came to sin, Jesus was a realist. He knew that this was a fallen world, and people will be tempted. He even himself knew from his own experience what temptation was. Even if we're not tempted by anything in the world outside of us, we're still tempted by our own hearts. We all deal with the inner sinful nature, which we must constantly put to death. But woe to us if we're the ones who are doing the tempting, especially if we tempt the children of God. The word that Jesus uses for temptation, as it's used here in the ESV, 
refers to anything that is a stumbling block for people. Anything that causes them to fall. It's the Greek word scandalon. It's used in a similar way like in Romans 14 verse 13 in the area of Christian liberty where it says, let us be resolved not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Or in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, it says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Here in Luke, Jesus clearly is talking about something that causes people to fall down spiritually or to lead them astray into sin. Now, how does that happen? Well, we do it whenever we make our Christianity false and unlovely before the world. It's like the the story of a minister and his wife who were doing a tour in, in Europe, and they were witnessing to the tour guide there, and he said to them, our are you people like Jimmy Baker? And everybody, of course, knows that, 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 that story. It was, of course, said in jest, but the world knows that. The, the Jimmy and the Tammy Bakers who brought untold damage by their sensuality. Think of David when the prophet Nathan came to him, confronting him after he had committed adultery, and killed Uriah the Hittite. He said, because of this deed, you've done what? You have given great occasion to the enemy, enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But it's not just the big names that, that come out here. We discredit the faith by our inconsistencies of temper. We do that when we have a complaining spirit that causes others to be discontent. We do this by speaking evil words that can destroy someone's reputation. We do it when we join others in some juicy gossip. When there's bad news going around about someone and we're we're itching to hear it. We do it by carrying on with an argument to the point where it provokes an angry response. We do it by enticing someone to commit sexual sin by sharing pornography or by dressing provocatively. We do this when we keep pressing a friend to have another drink and another drink and another drink. We do this when we boast in our own accomplishments and achievements in a way that makes other people resentful and jealous. We do it in front of our own kids when we teach them our bad habits. Whether we use crude language or insult people behind their backs or we use polite speech We always are teaching our children. If you lace your language with phrases like, oh my God, or some other profanity, the inevitable teaching is that it's okay to do that. Of course, everyone has to take a responsibility for their their own actions, but woe to us if we're making it easier for them to sin or making it harder for them to be godly. So we have to take this woe very carefully. Tempting people is a very grave sin, especially if people we tempt happen to be less spiritually mature. 
Jesus uses this word here, little children, and that does apply to all Christians, of course, but he's speaking in particular of those who are new believers, those who used to be sinners and tax collectors. New believers are very vulnerable in their Christian experience and have more experienced, and more experienced disciples need to be very careful not to lead them astray. Now, this is a very... This is a very deeply searching truth that Jesus is bringing forth. And it comes with a a strong warning about the great sinfulness of putting stumbling blocks in the way of souls. We're called to repent. But woe to us if we cause a little one to fall. Jesus said it would be better for him to die a violent death by drowning with a heavy millstone around his neck then cause a little one to fall. Now that's not a very pretty picture by any means. And this is coming from the meek and mild Jesus Christ who said this. Better, he said, for that horror to have happened to someone rather than that same person had caused one of Jesus' little ones to sin. Because a more terrible woe is going to happen. It's a very grave sin. Consider all the moral and financial scandals that have corrupted the name of Christ. Wouldn't it have been better if these things had never happened? Indeed, if that person had died by their own downfall. That's why we need to pray for our office bearers, that God would would protect them. We also need to be vigilant ourselves. We often have to ask ourselves whether we're doing any good or harm in this world. We cannot live to ourselves if we're Christians. There are eyes upon us. People do notice us and can tell whether or not we are contradicting the truth and living by what we believe. One old writer put it this way. He said, let us endeavor to make our religion beautiful in the eyes of men and adorn the doctrine of Christ in all things. Let us strive daily to lay aside every weight in the sin which most easily besets us. And so to live that men can find no fault in us except concerning the law of our God. Let us watch jealously over our tempers and tongues and the discharge of our social duties. Anything is better than doing harm to souls. The cross of Christ will always be an offense. Let us not increase that offense by carelessly, by carelessness rather, in our daily life. Well, closely linked to this demand of not causing others to stumble, to, to stumble in, in to sin is the responsibility to, to help them when they fall. Verse 3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now the sequence of this is important. First, watch yourselves. Why is it that people fall into sin? Well, it's because they have not been watchful or prayerful. Peter fell, as we know, during Jesus' trials. Jesus' Jesus trial, rather. Why did he fall? Well, the answer is because 
He didn't do what the Lord had said. He said to pray. There are no mysteries to Peter's fall. There's no need for a complex psychological analysis. The whole problem began there. He did not go in weakness to the throne and ask for grace to help in time of need. He thought he could cope all of this. He thought he could cope all on his own. And out of that came his fall. So we're to take heed to ourselves. Watch lest you grow self-confident and are not doing what the Lord is telling you. Watch lest you're neglecting prayer. Watch for signs of spiritual declension. Watch for any backsliding and deal with it. Nip it in the bud. And then Jesus says that there is a need to be courageous and to deal with our brother or sister in the Lord who has stumbled into sin. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to confront sin. We need to go to one another courageously, not, not timidly, willing to say what needs to be said, no matter what the cost. We need to go to one another gently, not judgmentally, demonstrating the tender mercy of Christ. We need to go to one another humbly, not proudly, having already confessed our own sin. And we need to go to one another affectionately. We need to go to one another prayerfully, not impulsively, asking the Lord to be glorified in a moment of reconciliation. But we do need to go to one another. A sin needs to be called a sin in a way that leads to repentance. The question is, do we care enough for a brother or sister to do this in a compassionate and Christ-like way? And then attached to this is this responsibility to forgive. Verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns, you, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now some have taken that word if as in if he repents to mean that there is, that here is an absolute qualification on forgiveness, as if to absolve yourself of any forgiveness in your heart if a person doesn't ever repent. But that's contrary to what Jesus is saying, or even what he himself lived. He, he himself prayed for forgiveness of, of his enemies when he was on the cross. Surely Jesus wants us to have a forgiving heart towards someone who has done us wrong, even before we have that opportunity to offer formal forgiveness. Certainly, he doesn't want us to be holding on to grudges, even when we've been greatly harmed. We need to have a disposition of forgiveness. So then what does Jesus mean when he says, if? Well, listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, if, if doubtless... It, it doubtless cannot mean that we are not to forgive men unless they do repent. At this rate, there would be much bitterness constantly kept alive. But it does mean that when there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, there can be no renewal or cordial friendship or complete reconciliation between man and man. What Jesus has here is the ideal 
situation where everything goes the way that we had hoped and prayed for. A rebuke was brought. It brought forth the process of reconciliation. Although a sin was committed, true repentance came forth. Now it's a time to forgive and to forgive again. How many times? Up to seven times a day if necessary. Of course, that does raise some questions like, how can someone really be repentant if they have, have to repent over and over again? And what about Matthew 18 and what it says regarding church discipline? What about accountability? Well, these are legitimate questions, and the Bible speaks to them in other places. But this is where Jesus is telling us to forgive and to be forgiving. That doesn't deny the need for people to be held accountable for their actions. Nor does it deny that there's a proper place for justice and to hold people up to be responsible. There's a need to rebuild trust as well. But Jesus wants us to have a heart of forgiveness. And when we have that heart of Christ, we're able to forgive and to forgive again. Now, the person who hasn't learned to bear and forbear or to put up with much and look over much is not born of the Spirit. We need to heed what Jesus said. Matthew 5, he said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes... His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So how about you today? Who doesn't know the pride and haughty spirit and self-importance that takes offense and determines never to forgive that offense? How many go to the Lord's table and, and even profess their love for the gospel? but who are fired up the minute there is that least appearance of what they call offensive behavior, while at the same time fighting and quarreling themselves? How many fight with everyone around them, forgetting that their own quarrelsome spirit is what ignites the flame? One thing is sure, an unforgiving and quarrelsome spirit is a sure sign of an unregenerate heart. God's word says, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. We need the soul-searching, soul-healing work of forgiveness. However many times someone comes to tell us their story, we're to say, I forgive you. For has not God, the Father, forgiven you countless times? Isn't his grace in Christ limitless? Well, at this point, the disciples had to interrupt. Jesus laid terrible responsibilities upon them, and the apostles reeled under the impact of these demands. We should understand this. It's hard to be a good example and not to lead others astray. It's hard to confront someone in sin. It's hard to forgive a person who's done something that is sinful against you. What Jesus said is far above our own ability. 
And that brings us to the second point. That essential request. Verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now this has to be numbered with a few of the wisest words that the disciples said during Jesus' ministry. They didn't say very many wise things, but this is certainly a very wise thing, other than saying that they believed that Jesus was the Christ, that was the greatest. They asked for the right thing. They didn't ask for more courage and compassion to, to confront their own sin and other people's sins. They didn't ask for more patience with others who are difficult to love. They needed all these things and more. What they needed more than anything else was more faith. Faith in the Lord's great power. Faith in the Lord's great promises. Faith in the leading of the Father. Faith in the grace of Jesus. Faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith in the Lord is a gift. Faith for life's challenges is a gift. Like the humble prayer of the man who had that son who was demon-possessed, who came to the disciples and the disciples couldn't cast him out. And he said to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The Old Testament is filled with stories of people of faith who had that ability to forgive. People of faith are forgivers. For example, Abraham, the father of the righteous by faith, he was like this. When the herdsmen of Lot came to quarrel with the herdsmen of Abraham, he did not quarrel with them, but calmly gave Lot his choice. Abraham's faith fostered a forgiving spirit. Joseph, a man of faith, forgave his brothers, even though they had done so much wrong to him. Moses, when he was rivaled by Miriam and Aaron, did not retaliate, but meekly trusted the Lord. And David stood over the sleeping Saul on as his own friends said to him, take his life. He deserves it. Take his life. But he spared Saul's life because he trusted God. If a man or a woman is truly great in faith, they will be gentle and forgiving. They will enter a rest that gives them a calm spirit which keeps them from seeking revenge, readily extending Forgiveness instead. If you have trouble forgiving, then ask for faith. We need to trust, to believe that God is in control, that he is at work. We need to believe that he loves us and accepts us just as we are. We need to believe that he will take care of us. We need to pray. For we need his grace. There's a very beautiful story about this in a book called To End All Wars, written by Ernest Gordon. And it's a, a true story of um, POWs on the River Kwai, a very uh, infamous camp. 
It's a real-life account of the, these group of captured soldiers when they went through the horrible time of being there. But yet they came to faith in Christ. One of the most moving parts of this true story is how these soldiers came to forgive their captors, the Japanese. They had learned to love their enemies, to pray for them, even though they were treated so badly. The words of Jesus on the cross gave them this courage to be forgiven when Jesus cried out those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ernest Gordon says this, after they had heard God's word on a good Friday under the hot sun by the the, uh, river Kwai, Ernest Gordon writes these words. He says, I recognize that it, was, that it was no easy thing to call that figure on the cross, Lord. I heard again his words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This he had said for his enemies. But what was I to say for mine? I could not say what he said, for he was innocent where I was not. Humbly, I had to ask, forgive me and my enemies, for we know not what we do. How do they have that ability to forgive? Well, they got this by faith. They found it at the cross where we ourselves have been forgiven if and when we believe. If we believe this, the wrongs that have been against us, then we can forgive our fellow sinners for all the wrongs that they do to us. For haven't we all done wrong things to one another. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. He's used that analogy similar to this before, talking about mountains saying to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. And you ask that by not doubting your heart. Uh, This will be done. It's a bit of an intimidating um, analogy or parable that Jesus uses here. And yet, it's an illustration that's very powerful. What he means is that even one little tree, like a mulberry tree, is beyond our own ability to move. A mulberry tree has a very aggressive root system. It can be well established in the ground that according to rabbis of that time, it could live up to 600 years. It was was hard enough to uproot a mulberry tree, if not also to throw it into the sea. Who had the power to do that? And Jesus' point is, like, mulberry, like a mulberry tree is almost impossible to uproot except by God's power. So in the same way, a person's bitterness, their ill temper, a deep-seated hatred and inability to forgive that's deep within the heart can be removed and uprooted by God's strength. The power doesn't come from us. There's no magical healing power here as if we can wave the wand and everything will be fine. It takes faith. Faith is a mustard seed, which is tiny, small, and insignificant. But when it grows, 
It has that power to heal. Faith enables us to resist the temptation to destroy because we trust in the powerful God. Or like Jesus said on another occasion, when, or with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Is that true of you today? Do you have this ability to uproot deep-seated hatred? Not on your own. You need it from the Lord. The story is told of a Zulu chief in South Africa whose wife became a Christian. When he heard that what had happened, the chief was enraged. He told his wife she should never again go to that evangelistic meeting that was taking place there. But she was so drawn to the truth that she couldn't resist it. She had to go back. Oh, when the chief found out that his wife had gone, he went to find her. And in a rage, he dragged her out of the village and beat her and left her for dead. But he later wondered if she had survived. So he went to find her. And she was still living, gasping for air. So he said to her scoffingly, Now what can this Jesus do for you? And she replied very gently and very quietly, with her eyes barely open, he helps me to forgive you. Yes, Christ is the person who will help us to forgive. Put your faith in him and his work on the cross. Amen. Before we sing, we're going to have just a brief moment of prayer, and then we'll sing. Our gracious Father, thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus' challenge to us, knowing again that this is something that we're incapable of following. We thank you for the grace and for the gift of faith, and we pray that you would enrich us this day with your Holy Spirit, to respond to what we have heard with gladness in our hearts, but also a reflection, a turning from sin, and a trusting in you for your forgiveness. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll sing now from hymn 81. 81 stands as 1 to 7. 81 stands as 1 to 7. Thank you. 